the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's simple truth moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning again, San Diego Saints. We are continuing our study um, on a book called Homecoming, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And um, last week, we talked a lot about um, the chapter. We've been on this chapter for a couple, three weeks here, uh, solving the mysterious construction project of one new man in Messiah. And um, I just want to give you a real brief review of um, what we talked about last week, and then we'll get into the new material. But um, this is all with the backdrop of answering the question, um, Paul, the apostle, spent a lot of time talking about one new man and Messiah. Um, he spent probably the vast majority of the whole book of Ephesians talking about it. And then he dedicates um, two chapters of the book of Galatians to it. And then he dedicates three chapters in the book of Romans to it. And so obviously, uh, Paul was led by the Holy Spirit. This is a really big issue uh, with Father God. And um, what we oftentimes see is regarding the division between Jews and Gentiles, I'm just um, reading from a worksheet that we, uh, I'm part of a think tank here where we have Jews and Gentiles, uh, two Jews and two Gentiles working on kind of a statement or a summary, if you will, as to why one new man should be really uh, emphasized in both camps, uh, especially in the times in which we live. And um, one of the thoughts here, I have seven um, items here. I'll just read them here real quick. Uh, There is a division between Jews and Gentiles, and um, we can see that. We know that, and that's been that way for uh, a very long time. We're talking almost a couple thousand years here. Um, And one of the thoughts is that, excuse me, the um, Messianic Jewish community oftentimes uh, prioritize uh, their Jewish identity um, over just about everything, and often to the exclusion of kingdom activity. And there's a lot of fault in the Gentile camp um, on being open-minded about bringing Jew and Gentile together. And the Gentiles, especially the evangelical uh, community, um, they support Israel in general. Uh, They don't dislike Jews, but they they don't see any reason why they should even care. Why, Why should we care about when God saves them or how they're brought in or, you know, what he's doing with the Gentiles and why are we even talking about it? And here is, or here are some reasons why it's a big deal. Uh, again, these are points that um, we're using in the think tank and prayer tank, so to speak. Um, the kingdom of God, which is the gospel that Jesus Christ preached, that John the Baptist announced, um, is a continuation of God's plan of of being a covenant God, and um, because kingdom is bringing God's government to earth, which is our inheritance as children of Father God. And that's why it matters. So the kingdom of God is foundational to an understanding of what new man in Christ is all about. Um, I've Sometimes somebody in the elevator says, what's your elevator speech? And I say, why one new man is important. And I'm saying, well, in this world of division and uh, everything being separated, and uh, we need some unity fast. And um, I'll just say, look, the Bible's a family reunion story, and um, and it's all about Jesus coming to reconcile us back to our Father. 
it says that in several of the last verses of Second Corinthians chapter five. You know, there's I think we alluded to it last um, week. There's five or six references to reconciliation as to the reason why Jesus came was to bring us back to the Father. Well, why is that so critical? Well, answers the question, well, what did we lose in the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3? What did mankind lose? We lost our relationship with our Father, and thus, by definition, since eternal life in John 17, 3 is knowing God and being connected to God— and allowing God to, in, you know, indwell us. That's John chapter four, uh, 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, John chapter 17. It's all about indwelling. And uh, many of the parables that Jesus taught were people who thought they were doing okay, but they didn't know God. They maybe knew about him, that, but relationally, in their heart, they didn't know him relationally. And so... The kingdom of God is foundational to this understanding of bringing these two groups together. What draws us together is the way we have a mutual father, okay, both groups. And so that alone should, should signify that we are members of the same family, and therefore with a mutual father, we can both come together as siblings and say we need to talk to each other. We need to work things out. We need to say how do we reach God? How does he reach us? Um, and then... Uh, there are two subheadings under that about the kingdom of God being foundational to the understanding of one new man. Uh, the first one is it must be defined in terms of representation of the Father. In other words, um, after we get his likeness, because we're made in his likeness and image, we're supposed to uh, be his representative by imaging his likeness out horizontally to the world. That was the point. Um, in 2B, let's see here, this is the second one. This is um, another subsection. The kingdom of God um, is foundational to the understanding of one new man. One new man all, must be defined in terms of obedience to the king. So it must be defined in terms of represent, our representation of the Father as his agents, uh, as his witnesses, uh, as his children, as his heirs. Uh, but it also must be defined in terms of obeying the king. And why is that? Let me just take a little rabbit trail here for a moment. Uh, I asked this question the other day. What's the difference between revolution and rebellion? Well, there's this movie that came out uh, a couple months ago that was called The Jesus Revolution, and it was all about um, how the hippie movement turn from um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll over to having a serious relationship with God. And the, the main difference between revolution and rebellion, notice what the movie was called. It was called The Jesus Revolution. But whenever we're talking about what happened in the second heavens in um, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, where the fallen angels stepped away from God. We call it not a revolution. We call it a rebellion. And so I started to dig and search why and what is the difference between the significance of those two words. Revolution is a successful um, overturning of the established order, and rebellion is the opposite. It's a failed attempt to overthrow the established order. And, um, of course, we see uh, that's why the, God made the covenants with the patriarchs. It was a continuation of the covenant that we see um, with Adam and Eve, and that Eve was told as part of the uh, curse of earth that there will be seed that will come from her and will bruise or crush the head of the deceiving serpent. Um, there were covenants with the patriarchs, which basically gave us our family membership, our family identity, uh, our family inheritances. And those covenants are still active and still alive. But these covenants are designed to carry on 
um, an overturning of the system or the government of fallen angels who basically have been running the earth since Genesis chapter 3. And so going back to these points of where do we start to how to explain one new man, um, the rebellion against God, which began not on earth but began in the second heavens in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, um, in essence was saying the opposite of the only prayer that Yeshua, Jesus Christ, taught us, which is called by the Catholics, the Our Father, and the Protestants, that's called the Lord's Prayer. And and when it says, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, and then the next line is, your will be done. Well, that's how we know whether the, the government, the kingdom of God is present or not, is whether we are doing God's will in the moment with a particular situation, with a particular circumstance that we're dealing with, with the particular individuals that we're dealing with. And when we say your kingdom come, notice the very next line in the Lord's Prayer is thy will be done. That's how we know God's government, God's kingdom is coming to the earth because we say may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth. And this is where the heavenly rebellion in the second heavens of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 uh, came down to. And um, as we've said in past shows, the enemy was not happy that they were not selected to uh, be in charge and have dominion over the material creation. God, Father God as creator decided to put mankind in charge of the material creation. So the next essential element of one new man thinking is um, when we talk about covenants from Adam on, notice these covenants, these contracts are all tied to the land. They're all tied to the earth as being the ultimate inheritance. Why? Because it's a continuation of God's original blueprint idea, his original design, which was to have mankind in charge of the material creation. So every covenant that Father God is making, this is why we have to read the Old Testament, we can't eliminate the first two-thirds of this book. We will not understand when Jesus shows up and says he's talking about, and not the soon escaping church, he's talking about the soon coming kingdom of God. Those two messages are totally opposite. Every covenant that God makes from Adam on, including the covenant with Noah, including the covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, with David, those covenants are tied to the inheritance of God's children, which is back here on land. It's kind of a reconquest, if you will, if you want to think about kingdom versus kingdom. The prize is the earth. The prize, the inheritance is the land. The prize and the inheritance of the earth um, involves the nations of the earth. That's why the nations are mentioned immediately um, when Father God tells Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. And Israel, as a prototype, is going to serve as an example of how to have a restored relationship with Father God. That restoration is something that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. This is the comeback. This is the return. This is the reconquest. And so the next point is that the emphasis on the land suggests that salvation or deliverance is related more to the earth than it is to, to heaven. Why is there talk about land if heaven is the goal? And by the way, I'm not anti-heaven. I love heaven. When I die, I want to go to heaven. But I've said this earlier on other shows. I don't want to stay there. I want to come back um, when Jesus returns to rule and reign with him on earth. That's part of the rewards to the overcomers. Read the book of Revelation. Look how often that term is used, overcoming. 
okay? Paul the Apostle, he was on a mission. And what was that? He wanted to, by, you can see this in the book of Philippians. Uh, You can see this in many of his letters. He's saying, if by any means I can attain to the resurrection out from among the dead. That's the first resurrection of two resurrections referred to in Revelations 20. And those who participate in the first resurrection, blessed and holy are they, and they will not be hurt or threatened by the second death. Paul understood this, and he, he, he knew that le- eternal life was a relationship with God. It wasn't a ticket to go someplace. And he knew that he could lose this. He even said, here I am, um, the Jews of the Jews, right? I'm a t- member of the tribe of Benjamin, and I've been taught by Gemaliel, and I understand the law. The law was the tutor that brought me to Christ. But he understood that the goal was by any means to grab that for which he was selected and chosen, which was a relationship with the Messiah. Because that relationship in John 17, 3, is how you get eternal life. Read John 17, 3, over and over. Read John 12, uh, 49 and 50. It talks about eternal life not being a location or relocational, but it's relational. And so Paul was hyper-focused, obsessed, if you will, running a race uh, that he might lay hold of eternal life. He talks, uses that terminology in his um, letter to Timothy. He says, lay hold of eternal life. It's something relationally that has to be invested in, pursued, chased down by us. Um, it's not something that is if the free gift of the Christian Judeo-Christian experience is the the initial salvation gift of the blood sacrifice of the Lamb, which forgives our sin, removes our guilt, removes our shame of sin. But we've said this on earlier programs. Look, we've got to pursue a journey. We've got to leave Egypt and go out to a place where we get to know God again. That's the whole reason we were saved. Uh, sometimes people ask me, what were we saved for? What were you saved to? Because they've been taught you were saved so you die, you get to go to heaven. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It's not, I've looked, folks, okay? I'm a graduate of, of, of a very uh, prestigious um, Bible school, graduated magna cum laude, um, I've looked. That verse is not there. The reason Jesus came, so when I die, I get to go to heaven. It's not there once in any location, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. What Jesus came for was to reconcile us relationally back to our Father. That's why this one new man is so essential. And so when we talk about uh, emphasis on the land being that suggesting that salvation is related more to the earth that you can see that in Luke chapter four with the second temptation of Christ. Um, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the mountain and he's going to tempt him something. This is the the second temptation of the desert, right? What does he show him? He doesn't show him heaven as the the prize or the temptation. He said he shows him the world and all the kingdoms of the world, all the people groups. Why is it that they understand what's at stake and we do not? It's because of what we've been taught and that the teaching is unfortunately a Gnostic approach to the gospel. It's not a, it's not a Hebrew or a Jewish approach to a Jewish gospel. Okay, so let's go back. So we really can say what our initial salvation is all about is a restoration of our, as children of God, our vocation to represent the Father. We're supposed to image his likeness out. That's our vocation. That's our purpose. We're sp- it's just what Jesus did with the Father. When Philip says, well, show us the Father, and Jesus looks at Philip and says, you've been with me this long, and you don't know that you've seen the Father. When you look at me, you're seeing the Father. Why? The Father indwelt Jesus and Jesus indwelt the Father. 
And as we go to John 17, it's all about, this is the last part of the last prayer that Jesus died, uh, prayed with his apostles before he dies. And it's all about relationally, deeply establishing a life-giving relationship with the Father. And he says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I and you, Father, you and me, we in them and them in us. Why? Why is that important? So the world may know. So the world will believe that you, Father, sent me to earth. That's why you sent me. We don't teach that. We don't understand that. Now, initial salvation is immediate, but bringing heaven to earth, that's what it's all about. When we become born again, a lot of things happen. Um, yes, we're forgiven of our sins, and yes, we're allowed to start start that journey towards um, the wilderness to get to know God, since we've been away from him for, using the Jewish example, 430 years. But our job is to bring the government of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that's what kingdoms are, they're governments, to earth. The, the, the gospel is not about our escaping her earth to go to heaven. It's the... 180-degree reverse. We're supposed to bring the government of heaven to earth. Where do you see that? Well, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen, your kingdom come. Where was Jesus when he taught us this prayer? He was on earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's our job, is to bring God's kingdom to earth. Okay, number five in this essential elements of one new man thinking. Uh, One new man is wrapped up in identity as a citizen of the kingdom. Now, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to read and look where it says that it talks about Gentiles who were formerly alienated from God. They were far away, but they were drawn near by the blood of, of Messiah Jesus. And we became Now watch what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 2. We became a member of the household of God, which means we're now part of his family, but more largely on a corporate level, we became part of the commonwealth of Israel. We became a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel. How many people understand that? that that's referring to Gentiles who are coming in, being saved by this, um, this uh, I'm thinking in Spanish, what's the word in English? Predicar, to preach. This preaching of the gospel by Jewish apostles are saving Gentiles. And Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you're becoming citizens of the commonwealth of Israel members of the commonwealth of Israel. That's a government. Most Christians would not describe themselves as that way when they got born again. Um, so, number six, the role of Israel is to provide an example to the nations of how God's theocracy works. This is what we're talking about. We're bringing God's theocracy to, war, to kingdom theocracy to the world, to the earth. Why? because we've had nothing but chaos and frenzy and rebellion and disorder and violence and separation from God ever since Genesis chapter 3. We are a mess. And God is not into escapism. He is into bringing a renewal and a revitalization of his original plan by bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth not the other way around. Number seven, this is the last one, the role of the nations. Well, our role of the nations, if you read the last, um, uh, let's see here, it's Romans 9, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, is to provoke the Jews to jealousy. In other words, when we start entering into the kingdom of God and having a relationship with God at a profound and deep level uh, with all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, being saved by Messiah Jesus, being delivered from the power of sin, not just the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin over us. And we start indwelling God, and God begins to indwell us, as we see in 
uh, John 14, John 15, John 16, and John, especially John 17? Well, that is where the Jews start to say, wait a minute, why are these Gentiles who were late to the game? Because um, it, it, Jesus said this, the gospel is to the Jew first. And then they see us walking in kingdom power. They see us walking in relationship with God. And our role as members of the nations is to demonstrate the power and the efficacy of the Jewish kingdom of God gospel, even as Gentiles, because we've got to read the whole book. And then by working for the redemption of Israel so that Israel can fulfill its calling finally as God's chosen people. That's why one new man is such a big deal. We'll come pick up the next uh, half hour. See you after the break. Lord bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We are talking why the solving of what Paul calls a mysterious um, or a mystery. uh, The Jewish Bible calls it a... God's secret plan of one new man. There's a lot of talk about a construction project going on. And we talked last week about we need to understand why the reunion of one new man consisting of both Jew and Gentile is so important to God's construction project of having a living temple. Talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talks about that in the book of Hebrews, that we are God's living house, his residence, if you will, his home. And it's interesting that um, in John 14, Jesus talks about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will love you, my Father will love you, and we will come and make our abode or our home within you, amongst you, alongside of you. Now, through his son, Jesus, All authority and dominion is being reestablished right now in our times back to mankind so that mankind is empowered to rule and steward again the material creation just as it happened in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. This one new man is important because it's reflective of a reconquest of earth itself from the fallen angel kingdom of rebellion. The fallen angels, ever since the book of Job, think that God's appointment of of man, using Job as an example, to have dominion and to be prosperous and to be and to know God and to thrive. Um, there was a lot of envy and jealousy, but there was a lot of thinking that God just made a mistake when he put mankind in charge of the earth. But Ephesians chapter 2 refers to the inclusion of the Gentile nations being brought back into the commonwealth of Israel. I mean, people don't realize there's only one Israel. Okay, is it made up of Jews and Gentiles? Sure it is. But again, don't forget John chapter 10 when Jesus talks about the two um, flocks of sheep. They're going to become one flock and they're going to have one shepherd. And we became also, talking on a smaller scale, of smaller than the citizenship of being a part of the commonwealth of Israel, we're also members of the household of God. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we, when we go on to Ephesians chapter 3, this is how the mystery of one new man starts to play out. It refers, Paul refers to the Gentiles being fellow heirs, H-E-I-R-S, of the promise of Messiah Jesus with with the purpose of displaying, and here's what's really key here, the many-sided wisdom of God to display that to the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the powers in the second heavens. Wow. Basically, God's indicating, I didn't make a mistake when I put mankind in charge of the earth. And I'm going to follow through with this, so much so that what seemed to be impossible with Jew and Gentile separate are now going to become one in Messiah Jesus. 
And lastly, the body of these combined believers in Ephesians chapter 4, you got you got to go on to this. Again, we're talking about a construction project. The body of the combined believers, both Jew and Gentile, are going to grow up, are growing up from childhood to maturity, to the mature man. It's called basically the new creation in Christ. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, we are to put that on. It's like clothing. You're supposed to wear it. It's, it's your identity. It's who you become. We have our identity in our Father. And our Father says, look, I want you to put on my Son, to bring him into you, and watch what it changes in your nature, in your character, in your inclinations, how it gives you power over Satan's previous power of sin over your life. It gives you authority over his power, and as we do thy will be done, that trumps Satan's residual power over us. He can't influence us anymore. He cannot, not just influence, he can't make suggestions that we'll listen to anymore. We just say, no, we're taking every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ as um, ordered by See, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And so what happens as a result of this? By our putting on the new self, the new creation of Christ in us, we develop into what Paul says is true righteousness and holiness. Now, the reason I point um, that out in the book, uh, chapter 11, page 257 through 263, is I make a contrast between what's imputed righteousness, which was also explained by Paul in the book of Romans. Imputed righteousness is to cover us, is to act as a uh, covering or a guard while God is taking us through the change process. From the power of Satan to God. It comes straight out of Acts chapter 26. And what he's doing is to say, I am bringing you into my image. I am depositing my likeness into you so that you can image out or display or reflect my likeness out to the world. But that is not only imputed. Now it's evolving and developing into something that Paul calls in Ephesians for true righteousness and holiness. So that means that we walk the talk. That means we are living the sold-out life to God with all our chips on the poker table pushed to the center of the table, and we're telling God we're all in, and there are no limits. There are no conditions that we insist on. And we say, may your perfect will be done. Now, why is that so significant? Well, (laughs) how do you defeat the heavenly rebellion of Satan and his fallen angels that have taken over earth since Genesis chapter 3 when mankind was tricked into handing over his authority to a fallen angel. This rebellion against God by Satan's fallen government, by his kingdom, it ends, it stops, it's terminated. When God's united Jewish and Gentile children through obeying God's word. That's key. Why, why do I say that? Well, when we're studying the difference um, between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom, in Satan's kingdom, there's, instead of in the Our Father saying, thy will be done, your, your kingdom come, your will be done, instead of saying that, the fallen angels basically said the opposite. They said, your will be damned. I mean, that's that's what you say when you are saying we're rebelling against your godly government. And the opposition of that, of us as brothers and sisters of Messiah Jesus, as children of the Most High God, the Lord God of Israel who lives before whom we stand, we say, no, no, we're done with rebellion. And we say, Father, your kingdom come 
and that will be manifested. We'll know your government has come to earth in our lives, taking over every dimension of our lives. As we say, your will not be damned, as the angels, fallen angels said, but rather your will be done. Your will over our will. And when that occurs, the world begins to observe, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, true righteousness and true holiness, image bearers who begin to impact the world for the kingdom of God. See the difference? Christ's last prayer at the Last Supper in John 17, verses 20 through 24, he prays that the Father will unify both groups, Jewish and Gentile, together in one unified body. Why? This is one new man. I'm going to go over that again. It's so important. John 17, 20 through 24, Jesus, as Messiah, is praying that Father God unify both groups of Jewish and Gentile children into one unified body so that the world would understand and the world would see why, see the reason why the Father sent the Son, Messiah Jesus, as the world's Savior, as the world's deliverer from the the, uh, grasp of Satan, from the power of sin over our lives, and also as the one who reconciles. Finally, the children of God, mankind, reconciles them back to God and away from the fallen world's ruler of Satan. That's why it's so significant. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so crucial. And we have to understand that the enemy is going to try to do everything he can to keep Jew and Gentile divided. Um, I have here on page uh, 257... The rollout of God's secret plan of his mystery, which was, has been kept hidden for ages, is designed so that the authorities and rulers of the heaven, that is the principalities and heaven, principalities and powers in heaven, that's called, you know, in the second heaven where the rebellion began, they will learn, they will understand how limitless the manifold wisdom of Father God is, how broad it is as evidenced by the creation of this new messianic community of both Jew and Gentile. Where is that? Well, look it up, Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. We get grown up and matured in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read this. This is out of the Complete Jewish Bible by David Stearns. It's a little different, but listen to this. As Scripture tells us, God, quote, gave some people— this is going to be the fivefold ministry— some people as emissaries, some as prophets, some as proclaimers of the good news, and some as shepherds and some as teachers. When we take on the role God ordains for us, we will be ready to serve in ways that build up the body of Messiah until the time when we all arrive at the unity that results from trusting and knowing the Son of God, at full manhood. That's the relationship that we talked about earlier. At what level? At the standard of maturity, at the standard of perfection set by the Messiah. You know, we need to stop taking or taking the approach that as long as we live in this world that we just have to keep sinning. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not why Jesus came. He came in 1 John 3 to do away with the works of the devil. Well, what's that mean? If we still have the power of sin controlling us, Jesus came to not only forgive us of our guilt, but also to deliver us from that power. He says in Luke chapter 4, I have come to set the captives free. That's deliverance. So in Ephesians 4, we no longer will be infants. There's a grow-up process. That's why you got to go out to the desert after Passover. We will no longer be infants who are tossed about by the waves and blown along by every wind of teaching. We have to become more discerning in these end times. We have to ask the Lord to send his Holy Spirit. Father, in Jesus' name, send your Holy Spirit for discernment because there's so much deception. And this is what the Scripture says, at the mercy of people clever in devising ways to deceive. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in every respect grow up 
into him. You see the, the maturation process. Can't stay in diapers. We need to start going from drinking milk to eating solid food. And as we grow up into him, he who is the head, he's the Messiah of this body. We, you may be an elbow, you may be a knee, I may be an ankle, but every joint supplies. It says in the Jewish Bible, under his control, as Messiah Jesus is the head of this new body, the whole body is in the process of being fitted together and held together by the support of every joint with each part of the body working to fulfill its function. This is how the body grows and builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians uh, chapter 4, 11 through 16 in the complete Jewish Bible. And that's where, keep going down a little bit further in Ephesians 4, and then you'll come across Ephesians 4, 24, where it says, this is out of complete, um, no, it says New King James, and that you will put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, God is saying, I have given you every resource to actually conquer sin where you don't have to sin any longer. Can we now see why the adversary will undertake every means within his influence to derail and to sabotage the coming together of God's perfect one new man in Christ, one new man in Messiah? Why? Because true righteousness and true holiness, as evidenced by our obedience, destroys the kingdoms, Satan's kingdoms, of rebellion. Rebellion is the opposite of obedience. How can you separate the two kingdoms? Well, the kingdom of God is where people are doing, thy will be done. The kingdom of rebellion is manifested by individuals saying, your will be damned. Wow, done versus damned, unbelievable. And basically, when they say we are not going to do your will, that is an evidence that they are members of the kingdom of rebellion. Satan is op- in operation in that, is the head of that kingdom of rebellion. He's been that ever since Isaiah uh, chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter uh, 28. So in the years immediately after Messiah Jesus triumphantly rose from the dead, this new family began to take shape. Its early growing pains are well documented in the book of Acts, written by Luke, the Apostle Luke. In many cases, even though Messianic Jews and Gentile new believers worshiped together, the early framework of this family was predominantly Jewish in nature and character. But something happens. A tsunami of new Gentile believers comes in, and in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish leaders of the Messianic congregations had to convene a meeting. What do you do with all these new believers? And they had to deal with the rapid and the enormous influx of Gentiles. And the question was, what, were, what was to be required of them? Since they were not ethnically Jewish and they were not religiously Jewish, they were not familiar with, with the covenants and the law. But similarly, this one new man and Messiah movement today will undoubtedly experience growing pains, and that's why we must not shy away from them. We Gentiles do not have to become Jewish, and our Jewish brothers and sisters do not have to become Gentiles if we simply present a united front as proof that we, together, are united in purpose, we will drive the enemy crazy. We will drive the enemy bonkers. We do not have to be uniform in appearance to be united in purpose. I've been a member of a Messianic Jewish congregation for about seven years, and what I've seen is a trend where a lot of Gentile um, Believers who are disappointed with their uh, churches have come over, and they think they have to wear Jewish garb and, and um, you know, basically change their appearance to be more acceptable, um, you know, with the prayer shawls and wearing the kippahs, et cetera, et cetera. And look, you don't have to transition from what you are. God knows 
what he made when he made two groups of people, one being Hebrew, one being Jewish, and the other being the people of the nations. And so just you can learn the Jewish framework. You can learn the Jewish blueprint, but that doesn't mean you have to become something that you are not. God's not. If you're Gentile, stay Gentile. If you're Jewish, stay Jewish. The Jews are concerned because sometimes when they have people go over to Gentile churches, they just get subsumed by the, um, by the Gentile culture. And we can appreciate each contribution from each group, but it's kind of like playing, I'm going to steal this from uh, an example uh, taught by our rabbi, it's kind of like being out in the baseball field. And the only position that requires two players is second base. And it requires both a second baseman and it requires a shortstop. Well, how that how that single base is adequately defended depends on two players, not one. So if you compare second base to first base, the first baseman has his own designated base, as does the third baseman. He has his own designated base. But when it comes to playing Second base, you need coordination to effectively play that base. They have to talk to each other. They have to signal each other. They have to message each other. They have to almost know how the other one's thinking. And in essence, second base cannot be properly um, defended and properly managed if the two the two players, the shortstop and the second baseman, are not on the same understanding of what the goal is, what is the objective, what is the target. Our being united in person, this is from page 259 of the Homecoming book, our being united in purpose is the only thing that will ultimately defeat the kingdom of the adversary, the rebellious kingdom of Satan. Our being united in purpose reflects the reality that Father God's kingdom consists of true righteousness and holiness that we see in Ephesians chapter 4, 24, which is manifested. How is it shown? How is true righteousness and true holiness manifested? How is that displayed? How is that put on? By our obedience to all of the commands of the Father. Okay, I'm going to read this from the Complete Jewish Bible. This is uh, Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. If you really listened to him and you were instructed about him, then you learned that since what is in Yeshua, the Jewish name for Jesus, is truth, then so far as your former way of life is concerned, you must strip off your old nature because your old nature is thoroughly rotted by its deceptive desires, and you must let your spirits and minds keep on being renewed and clothe yourselves with the new nature created to be godly, which expresses itself, listen, in the righteousness and holiness that flow from the truth. And I add there on page 260, it's as simple as that. The adversary's kingdom is one of rebellion against God's will on earth, but the opposite is God's kingdom. And that's populated by Father God's own human children, both Jew and Gentile, who do the opposite. They obey his will on earth. That is the long and the short of it. Look at uh, Matthew 6, um, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, on earth. This is the only reason that we humans are in a galactic struggle of God's governmental goodness of obedience versus Satan's governance of evil rebellion against God's order, against God's kingdom. It is all about Obedience to God's will being done here, now, by us, on earth. I'll say that again. It is all about us. 
obeying God's will being done here by us on earth. And so that is how we are to deal with Satan's kingdom of rebellion once and for all. We must continually ask for the strength from the Holy Spirit. God, he sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name that we have the strength and the power to obey God no matter what the cost is to us. Anything short of that does not address God's continuing problem of rebellion. Dying and going to heaven does not fix God's problem of rebellion. The rebellion began in heaven. It started there in the second heavens. So if heaven were to fix everything, why did the problem of rebellion begin there? Ah, Okay, so I'm going to wrap up with this. This is from Matthew 19, 16. It's all about eternal life, folks. And what is eternal life? Knowing God. But how do you get eternal life? Listen to this. This is out of the New King James, Matthew 9, 16 through 17. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But listen, if you want to enter into life, what did we say life was? Knowing God. That's what life is. Keep the commandments. Wow. We'll end with that. Read that yourselves. Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. We will see you next week, Lord willing. And I hope that you have many simple truth moments with this upcoming week. See you next time. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.